Welcome to the Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine podcast, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Join Dr. Molly Estes as she's joined by prominent women in emergency medicine and other special guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Women's Wisdom podcast. My name is Molly Estes. I'm clinical faculty at Loma Linda University in Southern California. And my name is Liz Calhoun. I am an attending physician at Mercy Fitzgerald Hospital in Darby, Pennsylvania. And today we are very excited to welcome to our episode, Dr. Sulin Walker. Sulin, welcome. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me today. Sulin, tell us a little bit about um, where you work and what your practice looks like. Wonderful. I work in Miami at a place called um, Kendall Regional Medical Center. It's on the Southern aspect of Miami. My practice, I'm an attending physician and we have a nice group of residents. We've been a residency for about five years. Um, and it's quite wonderful. We, uh, we would deal with a very Hispanic population and we get residents from all over the country where we get to teach them there. That's incredible. And I know that for you personally, um, where you practice is very representative of some of the community that you grew up in. So tell us a little bit about growing up and being the first doctor in your family. I'll give it away. I, I, I already gave away the punchline. You were the first physician in your family. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. So my childhood was an interesting one. Um, both of my parents were immigrants from Cuba. They came to this country pretty young. Um, I didn't speak English until I joined school. We only spoke Spanish in my household. And I have a sister who's three years my elder. There was absolutely no medicine in my in my family. Um, even on a day-to-day -day practice, we did a lot of household remedies. Um, I did have a very, very inspirational pediatrician growing up um, who, who taught me a lot about medicine and I wanted to be like him, which is actually how this started. This journey in my life was me wanting to be like my pediatrician who was such an amazing gentleman. He became so involved and, and helpful to my family that he even actually came to my grandmother's funeral when she passed away. My, yeah, my grandmother passed away when I was a junior in high school. And if nothing else, that kind of solidified my, my ideas and my love for, for the field. I knew I wanted to do something where I helped people. I had thought about education and, you know, it kind of grew from there. I didn't have anybody that I can really ask questions to other than my pediatrician. So that made it a little bit hard. Um, you know, I didn't have those experiences where you get to do internships in high school. Um, that would have definitely showed me a lot more of medicine. I just had to go on my hunch that I liked it. Then I got to my AP classes in high school and I had a teacher who really, really was wonderful and inspirational and Miss Paula Mark. Um, and she really pushed for all of us that were in her AP classes who tried really hard to go away to college and she set me afoot where I ended up at Amherst College in Massachusetts and there I definitely met a lot more people with similar paths to, to mine and a very diverse program as well um, and that's kind of where doing my pre-med courses I really got the exposure that I wanted to and I started um, she set up for me to come back to Miami and, and shadow and do research with someone and after that point I knew that absolutely what I wanted was medicine um, my path took me to do a little bit of research at the NIH um, before going to medical school, which I did in New York, and then all the way to my residency in Massachusetts, one of the best programs I could imagine at Bay State. My path was hard, though, because along it, 
a lot of people aside from my English teacher in my high school, they didn't understand why I would want to be a doctor. They didn't understand why I could, couldn't just stay in Miami and be a teacher. Nothing to teachers. I think that it's the best profession in the world. Um, why I couldn't stay local. Um, nobody really went away in my community. People stayed. It was seen as disrespectful to your family to leave. So it was very hard for me to convince my family. Even my sister, who ended up going away for law school, had stayed for college. Um, so I was the first in a group to go to, away to college. And that was a big stepping stone um, in my independence and growth. So it was hard. Even my family members would tell me things like, women are meant to be um, teachers. You know, why aren't you just staying? You know, you could be a nurse. You can be a teacher. There wasn't a lot of push to be a doctor, except from my direct family, my mom and my grandparents, who were absolutely super inspirational and supportive of me. Wow, I'm really glad that you were able to share that. That sounds like you really overcame a lot of adversity, not just a lot of the external struggles that all of us face, but all this internal struggles too from yourself and from your family. That must have been so difficult hearing, why are you doing this when all you've been doing is pursuing the dream that you've had since you were a child? It was, and although I did love my college, it didn't get much easier when I started um, during orientation. This guy that was in my pre-med courses um, came up to me and very clearly, without knowing much about me, told me, um, oh, you must be here because of the diversity, you know, admission process, because we needed, you know, some, um, some representation as a Hispanic female. And I was like, cool, thanks. Um, that feels really inspirational when you're far away from everybody, you know, and everything, you know. It was quite um, inspiring when he didn't make it through pre-med and I did. Um, so just just the kinds of things that matter. Uh, karma and everything else implied in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, considering you're now the one on the podcast um, and we can say good luck to Mr. What's-His-Name. Uh, <laughs> he hasn't uh, accomplished nearly as much as you. Um, how has that entire experience of your the, the formative years of your life and now being a full practicing physician on the other side of training how have all of those experiences impacted your practice of medicine your ability to relate to your patients your the mentoring and the guidance that you give to trainees now yourself it's it's definitely been my entire persona in who I am today um, so I did come back to my community I'm practicing maybe 20 minutes from where I grew up um, in a population similar to what I grew up in, a heavily Cuban um, population. And um, so, so my practice is completely what I wish my grandparents had been able to get when they were here. Um, I try to model the position that I wish they had had when they went to hospitals, um, you know, allowing patients to speak in their first language, if, if that helps them. Um, and as far as my, my gauge towards my residents is, I have a very special place in my heart for the underdog. I have a special place in my heart for people who don't speak the language as well, or who are minorities, who are women, who find it a little bit harder to make that, that jump into medicine, who didn't have 25 uncles that they can just go shadow for their hours. Um, it means a lot to me to kind of be that support for them and try to offer those people hours when they're in med school. and you know, because it, it does become hard when you don't just have the family there to help support you a lot of, of who you know. And as far as the residents, I've just started a women in medicine group at my program. And we're working on a diversity and inclusion group um, as well, just because 
I think that we need to make our voices heard um, in both of these fields of medicine. Wow, you rock. You go, girl. Like, ab absolutely all the support from at least two people on this podcast and <laughs> from nationwide with the rest of the women in emergency medicine section of AAEM. Well done. I do have to say, yeah. though, they did set it up a little easily for me. I My practice um, right now is breaking records in South Florida. We have, um, I think right now our number is 48% female attendings. And next year, our class, when July 1st, when the new interns start, we'll have a 50% female residency. That's amazing. That's something to be proud of. And that, I think, really speaks to all the initiatives that you've started so that all the incoming residents who are interviewing can see all the strikes, all the strides you are making to become more inclusive and more representative of what our actual population looks like. Now, if you were thinking back to yourself as that high schooler or as the college student who is going through all these struggles, what's the one piece of advice that you wish you could have given yourself or that you would give to someone else who's now sitting in your shoes? I wish I had had more faith in myself and my accomplishments. I think, you know, we're constantly taught to question ourselves and to question where we're good enough or not. And I wish I had just taken the leaps, applied for the positions, done the, you know, extra step to, you know, apply for, for research positions and made myself known. I think too frequently we're worried about not having the credentials as women um, where men don't face that same kind of interaction. And I think that if we kind of just have more faith and more confidence in ourselves, um, people will follow. Couldn't agree more. I absolutely cannot agree more. And not to, you know, get too scientific about it, but this is exactly what the research shows, right? Women are less likely to put themselves up for positions if they perceive that they are not qualified for it. And we need to do a much better job of advocating not only for ourselves, but for each other and encouraging each other to pursue all of the opportunities that are available to us. I feel like this isn't, overarching theme on our podcast about how we just all need to stand up and ask for things, ask to try something new, ask to get into that position because other people are finding that they're getting things they never thought they could have because nobody else wanted it. So that person that got it, they might've been the only person in line. And if you just said yes to it too, you might be there. In the last uh, year or so, I've really made a big push for this in my life. And that's how I ended up running for counselor for women in emergency medicine. And here I am, and I couldn't be happier. That's right. Sue Lynn is part of the incoming board, governing board for the women in emergency medicine section for AAEM. So even more accolades coming her way. What do you hope to accomplish in the next year, both personally and professionally? What with this new role with women in emergency medicine, with all of your leadership work in your residency, what are some of your big goals that you'd like to see happen? You know, I think that I'm still at a point where I'm taking baby steps. Um, this is all very new to me. I, I came out, I'm about four years out of residency and it took me a few years to get my footing before I felt that I could take on leadership roles um, and roles where I can help other people. But I really hope that I can be a guidance and advocate, a mentor and a sponsor for those women coming through in residency, coming through in medical school, so they can see this can be accomplished. So really importantly, I wanna set up talks um, with the residents at my program and you know expand to regional as, as best as possible, where we talk about interviewing for positions, where we talk about 
um, applying to positions, even if you don't meet all the criteria, that men do this as well. And that it's not just, you know, stepping out of your boundaries, that it's okay to do these things. Um, and so those are big things I want to accomplish. And with my diversity and inclusion, I kind of want to make a safe space for all of us to practice. I think that we think that we do. We're kind of in a forefront of a generational shift um, where things are viewed a little differently. Microaggressions are viewed differently. And I think we're kind of in the age group where we were there for both of those parts. And I kind of want to be a liaison to help everybody understand that we're not trying to call anybody names. We're not trying to be mean to each other. We want to learn how to respect each other because I think a lot of it is that we don't understand what is disrespectful and what isn't. So I kind of want to do a lot of education as far as um, diversity, equity, and inclusion are, especially at my program. And, and hopefully I can grow from that as well. Now, one of the other topics that is very near and dear and personal to your heart, it has to do with motherhood, physician, being a physician and being a mother as well. Um, tell us a little bit about your experiences having a kid in residency. So I do have to give an aside that I chose my residency program because when I was interviewing, I had a feeling I was going to have a child during residency. And when I interviewed at this program, I just felt like they were going to be a family-friendly program. And I was absolutely correct. What an amazing place to have my child, though by no stretch or means is it easy to have a child second year of an emergency medicine residency. Um, so I had my daughter, Skylar, who's five years old now, when I was a second year resident towards the end of second year. Um, I, by choice, worked until she was a C-section baby. Um, I had her on Monday. No, sorry. I had her on Wednesday and I worked until Monday. Um, and so... Would you recommend that to the general populace? <laughs> so for me, it was important because I would have gone crazy at home thinking about what's going on with the baby. Um, so I... Distraction, but, departmental distraction. <laughs> yeah, so I use it as a great distraction. And also it gave me the most time after with baby, which was important to me. Um, with Aiden, I was a an attending already and I worked um, Friday and I had him on Monday um, and they would crack up because at my eight month, nine month part, I was still doing CPR. The nurses were not happy with me. Again, no, I think I'm not. Uh, happy. No. <laughs> it's because if the, the patient lost pulses and I was the only one in the room, I started until someone relieved me. It wasn't by choice. But I'm pretty sure you could write a book about, you know, doing active CPR, um, terminally pregnant, and the ability for that to induce labor. <laughs> and the best part is they were both C-sections, so nobody wanted me to go into labor either. So, um, but it was possible. So I think, you know, being a resident is really hard because you don't know how to advocate for yourself. And if anybody's listening who's going to be pregnant or is pregnant, we're planning that you are the only person who cares about your pregnancy and your postpartum time and your breastfeeding if you choose to do that. And I tell med students when they come rotate with us, I was lucky we had one recently that was breastfeeding. And I told her, I was like, she's like, oh, can I please? I'm like, no, this isn't a can I please type of thing. This is, I am going to go pump. I am going to go, you know, feed my child because nobody else is going to advocate for you as much as we want to. Sometimes we don't know. And so you need to set that time. You need to set those boundaries because it's not helpful to anybody if you end up with mastitis, um, aside from all the benefits for your child. Um, and I did breastfeed both of my kids. It was important for me once it started working that I do. Um, and it was through support of these amazing female attendings at my program. My family hadn't breastfed either. Um, so I had no intention to. And there was these wonderful women at my program with me who both had 
gone like after Elon had gone through breastfeeding their children during um, late residency, early attending hood, and I got to see them through their process. And it was so inspirational for me that I, I took the bait and I went for it and I breastfed and I breastfed both children for a year. And they taught me, they taught me to say, I'm going to breastfeed now. I've seen my patients. These are the sick ones. I'm going to, you know, choose to either write notes during my break or use that time to see my children's faces while I pump. And it, I called it a break incidentally, but it's not a break. Anybody who's been through the process knows that this is very difficult. And I tell everybody all through my struggles and trials and tribulations, breastfeeding has been the hardest thing I've ever done. More power to you for making it a whole year with two babies in two very different environments. Did you feel like it was different for you the second time around? Um, and just because you've done it before and you were better able to advocate for yourself? Or did you experience new challenges that you didn't expect doing this in an attending setting versus a residency setting? Yeah, so um, my job now, thankfully, I have a wonderful medical chair as well. Um, she's a female and she also breastfed her children. And I think that this also just leads to a very supportive environment. And so on the aspect of support, I felt it was there, but there was new challenges. Um, there's times when we're single coverage. You know, we, we staff a freestanding emergency department as well. And it's a little harder to just walk away when you're by yourself. Um, so whereas as a resident, I think I only ran out once when my pumps and that was an accident. Um, you know, when I was an attending pumping, it wasn't rare for me to be at the bedside of a very critical patient that was brought in for a moment while I stabilized with my pumps in place. So that brought in some definite new challenges, um, as well as I felt that it was really important for me to be very verbal about every time I went to pump, not to be like, hey, I'm pumping, but so that the residents couldn't understand that that's what I was doing because I wanted to normalize it for them because I wanted that inspiration that I had had as a resident for the incoming residents and classes and everybody else, not only the women, but also the men, they need to see that this is something that happens all the time and is a regular part of the postpartum period. I think that we don't give enough credit sometimes to our male colleagues and their desire to be included in with us when we are going through these experiences. Um, I, I have to say that I, I come from a very supportive department as well. And we've had multiple women um, over the last few years that I've been working here, um, either be pregnant or be breastfeeding, not only in our attending um, uh, group, but also our resident group. And it has, I, can't, I shouldn't say surprised me because I know that my male colleagues are so supportive as well. But I do catch myself occasionally thinking, oh, you care, you, you want to know. I just watched, you know, one of my residents tell her co-resident, her male co-resident that she's going to go pump. And he's like, great, what do you need me to do for your patients? And I think that we don't realize that we need to include our male colleagues in on a lot of these conversations and a lot of these important things to us because they want to support us in it as well. And I think that a lot of it stems from our preconceived notions of not wanting to bother people and all this guilt that we internally feel. And we make it a big problem, I think, than it is. I think if we got to the point where we felt comfortable saying, hey, colleague, this is what's gonna happen, we'd be surprised, again, maybe surprise isn't the right word, but surprised at how much support we have. And I've been met with nothing but. Well, Sulan, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your very busy schedule in order to come on the podcast. It's been 
incredible to get to know a little bit more about you and your background and the fire and the passion and the drive that you bring not only to your day-to-day -day practice, but to your family and now to the Women in EM uh, Council as well. So thank you so much. I look forward to working with you more on the council and go out there and keep changing the lives of the people around you. I can't wait to see all the next generation of women that you have mentored come and step up and sing your accolades. So well-deserved. Thank you guys both so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under resources and then publications. Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.